Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, Volume 2, Chapter 4. Having restored the tissues of the excellent nourishment which Barabolt's Hotel always provides, and arranged that Ginger was to pick me up in his car later in the afternoon, my own sports model being at the vet's with some nervous ailment, we parted. He to go in search of Magnolia Glendenin, and I to walk back to the Worcester GHQ. It was, as you may suppose, in thoughtful mood that I made my way through London's thoroughfares. I was reading a novel of suspense the other day, in which the heroine, having experienced a sock in the eye or two, was said to be lost in a maze of numbing thoughts, and that description would have fitted me like the paper on the wall. My heart was heavy. When a man is an old friend, and pretty bosom at that, it depresses you to hear that he's engaged to Florence Cray. I recall my own emotions when I had found myself in that unpleasant position. I had felt like someone trapped in the underground den of the secret nine. Though, mark you, there's nothing to beef about in her outer crust. At the time when she was engaged to Stilton Cheesewright, I remember recording in the archives that she was tall and willowy, with a terrific profile and luxuriant platinum blonde hair, the sort of girl who might, as far as looks were concerned, have been the star unit of a harem of one of the better-class sultans. And though I hadn't seen her for quite a while, I presumed that these conditions still prevailed. The fact that Ginger, when speaking of her, had gone so readily into his turtle-dove impersonation seemed to indicate as much. Looks, however, aren't everything. Against this pin-upness of hers, you had to put the bossiness which would lead her to expect the bloke she married to behave like a Hollywood yes-man. From childhood up she had been, well, I can't think of the word, it begins with an I. I know it's gone, but, but I can give you an idea. When, at my private school, I once won a prize for scripture knowledge which naturally involved a lot of researching into Holy Writ, and in the course of my researches, I came upon the story of the military chap who used to say, Come, and they cometh, and go, and they goeth. I've always thought that that was Florence in a nutshell. She would have given short shrift, as the expression is, to anyone who had gone when she said come, or the other way around. Imperious, that's the word I was groping for. She was as imperious as a traffic cop. Little wonder that the heart was heavy. I felt that Ginger, mistaking it for a peach, had plucked a lemon in the Garden of Love. And then my meditations took on a less sombre turn. This often happens after a good lunch, even if you haven't had a cocktail. I reminded myself that many married men positively enjoy being kept on their toes by the little woman, and possibly Ginger might be one of those. He might take the view that when the little W made him sit up and beg and snap lumps of sugar off his nose, it was a compliment. Really, because it showed she was taking an interest. Feeling a bit more cheerful, I reached for my cigarette case and was just going to open it up when, like an ass, I dropped it and it fell into the road. As I stepped from the pavement to retrieve it, there was a sudden tooting in my rear. And whirling on my axis, I perceived that in about another two ticks, I was going to be rammed midships by a taxi. The trouble about whirling on your axis, in case you didn't know, is that you're liable, if not an adagio dancer, to trip over your feet. 
and that is what I proceeded to do. My left shoe got all mixed up with my right ankle. I tottered suede and after a brief pause came down like some noble tree beneath the woodman's axe. And I was sitting there lost in a maze of numbing thoughts when an unseen hand attached itself to my arm and jerked me back to safety. The taxi went on and turned the corner. Well, of course, the first thing the man of sensibility does on these occasions is to thank his brave preserver. I turned to do this and blow me down if the BP wasn't Jeeves. It came as a complete surprise. I couldn't think what he was doing there, and for an instant the idea occurred to me that this might be his astral body. Jeeves, I ejaculated. I'm pretty sure this time it's the right word. Anyway, I'll risk it. Good afternoon, sir. I trust you are not too discommoded. This was a somewhat narrow squeak. It was indeed. I don't say my whole life passed before me, but a considerable chunk of it did. But for you... Not at all, sir. Yes, you. And you only saved me from appearing in tomorrow's obituary column. A pleasure, sir. It's amazing how you always turn up at crucial moments, like the United States Marines. I remember how you did that when A.B. Filmer and I were having our altercation with that swan. And there were those other occasions, too numerous to mention. Well, you will certainly get a rave notice in my prayers next time I make them. But how did you happen to be in these parts? And where are we, by the way? This is Curson Street, sir. Of course! I'd have known that if I hadn't been musing. You were musing, sir? Deeply. I'll tell you about it later. So, this is where your club is, right? Yes, sir. Just around the corner. In your absence and having completed the packing, I decided to lunch there. Thank heaven you did. If you hadn't, I'd have been... What's that gag of yours? Something about wheels. Less than the dust beneath thy chariot wheels, sir. Or rather, the cabbie's chariot wheels. Why are you looking at me with such a searching eye, Jeeves? I was thinking that your misadventure had left you somewhat dishevelled, sir. If I might suggest... I think we should repair to the Junior Ganymede now. Oh, I see what you mean. You give me a good brush up and a wash, right? Just so, sir. And perhaps a whiskey and soda? Certainly, sir. I need one sorely. Ginger's practically on the wagon, so there were no cocktails before lunch. And do you know why he's practically on the wagon? Because the girl he's engaged to has made him take that foolish step. And you know who that girl he's engaged to is? My cousin, Florence Cray. Indeed, sir. Well, I hadn't expected him to roll his eyes and leap about, because he never does that, no matter how sensational the news item. But I could see by the way one of his eyebrows twitched and rose perhaps an eighth of an inch that I had interested him. And there was what is called a wealth of meaning in that. Indeed, sir. He was conveying his opinion that this was a bit of luck for Bertram, because a girl you have once been engaged to is always there as a lurking menace, till she gets engaged to someone else and so cannot decide at any moment to play a return date. I got the message and thoroughly agreed with him, though naturally I didn't say so. Jeeves, you see, is always getting me out of entanglements with the opposite sex, and he knows all about the various females who from time to time have come within an ace of hauling me to the altar rails, but of course we don't discuss them. To do so, we feel would come under the heading of banding a woman's name, and the Worcesters do not bandy women's names, nor do the Jeeveses. I can't speak for his uncle Charlie Silversmith, but I should imagine that he too has his code of ethics in this respect. These things generally run in families. 
So I merely filled him in about her making Ginger stand for Parliament and the canvassing we were going to undertake, urging him to do his utmost to make the electors think along the right lines. And he said, yes, sir, and very good, sir, and I quite understand, sir, and we proceeded to the Junior Ganymede. The Ganymede turned out to be a very cosy club. I didn't wonder that he'd like to spend so much time of his leisure there. It lacked the sprightliness of the drones. I shouldn't think there was much bread and sugar thrown about at lunchtime, and you would hardly expect that there would be when you reflected that the membership consisted of elderly butlers and gentlemen's gentlemen of fairly ripe years. But as regards comfort, could not be faulted. The perler I had taken left me rather in the fleshy parts, and it was a relief after I had been washed and brushed up, and was on the spruce side once more, to sink into a well-stuffed chair in the smoking room. Simply my whiskey and S, I brought the conversation round again to Ginger and his election, which was naturally the front-page stuff of the day. Do you think he has a chance, Jeeves? He weighed the question for a moment, as if dubious as to where he would place his money. It is difficult to say, sir. Market Snodsbury, like so many English country towns, might be described as straight-laced. It sets a high value on respectability. Well, Ginger's respectful enough. True, sir, but as you are aware, he has had a past. Not much of one. Sufficient, however, to prejudice the voters, should they learn of it. Which they can't possibly do. I suppose he's in the club book. Eleven pages, sir. But you assure me the contents of the club book will never be revealed. Never, sir. Mr. Winship has nothing to fear from that quarter. His words made me breathe more freely. Jeeves, your words make me breathe more freely. As you know, I am always a bit uneasy about that club book. Kept under lock and key, is it? Not actually under lock and key, sir, but it is safely bestowed in the secretary's office. Sir, there's nothing to worry about. I would not say that, sir. Mr. Winship must have had companions in his escapades, and they might inadvertently make some reference to them which would get into gossip columns in the press, and thence into the Market Snodsbury journals. I believe there are two of these, one rigidly opposed to the conservative interest which Mr. Winship is representing. It is always a possibility, and the results would be disastrous. I have no means at the moment of knowing the identity of Mr. Winship's opponent, but he is sure to be a model of respectability, whose past can bear the strictest investigation. You're pretty gloomy, Jeeves. Why aren't you gathering rosebuds? The poet Herrick would shake his head. I'm sorry, sir. I did not know you were taking Mr. Winship's fortunes so much to heart, or I would have been more guarded in my speech. Is victory in the election of such importance to him? It's vital. Florence will hand him his hat if he doesn't win. Surely not, sir. That's what he says, and I think he's right. His observations on the subject were most convincing. It's well established that she handed Percy Gorringe the pink slip because the play he made of a novel only ran three nights. Indeed, sir. Well documented fact. Then let us hope that what I fear will not happen, sir. We were sitting there hoping that what he feared would not happen when a shadow fell on my whiskey and S and I saw that we had been joined by another member of the junior Ganymede. A smallish plumpish, God help us-ish, 
member wearing clothes more suitable for the country than the town, and a tie that suggested he belonged to the brigade of guards, though I doubted if that was the case. As to his manner, I couldn't get a better word for it at the moment than familiar, but I looked it up later in Jeeves' dictionary as synonyms and found that it had been unduly intimate, too free, forward, lacking in proper reserve, deficient in due respect, imprudent, bold and intrusive. Well, when I tell you that the first thing he did was to prod Jeeves in the lower ribs with an uncouth forefinger, you get the idea. Hello, Reggie, he said, and I froze in my chair, stunned by the revelation that Jeeves' first name was Reginald. It had never occurred to me before that he had a first name, and I couldn't help thinking what embarrassment would have been caused if it had been Bertie. Good afternoon, said Jeeves, and I could see that the chap was not one of his inner circle of friends. His voice was cold, and anyone less lacking in proper reserve and deficient in due respect would have spotted this and recoiled. The God help us fellow appeared to notice nothing amiss. His manner continued to be that of one who has met a pal of long standing. How's yourself, Reggie? I am in tolerably good health, thank you. Lost weight, haven't you? Don't live in the country like me and get good country butter. He turned to me. And you ought to be more careful, cocky, dancing about in the middle of the street like that. I was in that cab and I thought you were a goner. You're Worcester, ain't you? Yes, I said, amazed. I hadn't known I was such a public figure. Thought so. Don't often forget a face. Well, I can't stay chatting with you. Gotta see the secretary about something. Nice to have seen you, Reggie. Goodbye. Nice to have seen you, Worcester, old man. I thanked him and he withdrew. And I turned to Jeeves. That wild surmise I was speaking about earlier functioning on all twelve cylinders. Who in the blazes was that? He did not immediately reply, plainly too ruffled for speech. He had to take a sip of his brandy before he could master himself. His manner when he did speak was that of one who would have preferred to let the whole thing drop. The person you mentioned at the breakfast table, sir, Bingley. He said, pronouncing the name as if it soiled his lips. I was astounded. You could have knocked me down with a toothpick. Bingley? I'd have never recognized him. He's changed completely. He was quite thin when I knew him and very gloomy. You might say sinister. Always seemed to be brooding silently on the coming revolution when he would be at liberty to chase me down Park Lane with a dripping knife. The brandy seemed to have restored Jeeves somewhat for he spoke now with his customary calm. I believe his political views were very far to the left at that time when he was in your employment. They changed when he became a man of property. A man of property, is he? An uncle of his in the grocery business died and left him a house and a comfortable sum of money. I suppose it often happens that the views of fellows like Bingley change when they come into money. Very frequently, sir. They regard the coming revolution from a different standpoint. I see what you mean. They don't want to be chased down Park Lane with dripping knives themselves. Is he still a gentleman's gentleman? He has retired, sir. He lives a life of leisure in Market Snodsbury. Market Snodsbury? That's funny. Sir? Odd, I mean, that he should live in Market Snodsbury. Many people do, sir. 
And when that's just where we're going. Sort of coincidental. His uncle's house is there, I suppose. One presumes so, sir. We may be seeing something of him, then. I would hope not, sir. I disapprove of Bingley. He is dishonest. Not a man to be trusted. What makes you think so? It is merely a feeling, sir. Well, it was no skin off my nose. A busy man like myself didn't have time to go about trusting Bingley. All I demanded of Bingley was that if our paths should cross, he would remain sober and keep away from carving knives. Live and let live is the Worcester motto. I finished my whiskey and soda and rose. Well, I said, there's one thing. Holding the strong conservative views he does, it ought to be a snip to get into it for Ginger. And now we'd better be getting along. Ginger is driving us down in his car, and I don't know when he'll be coming to fetch us. Thanks for your princely hospitality, Jeeves. You have brought new life to this exhausted frame. Not at all, sir. Chapter 5 Ginger turned up in due course, and on going out to the car I saw he had managed to get hold of Magnolia all right, for there was a girl sitting in the back when he introduced us, his Mr. Worcester, Miss Glendennan, told the story. Nice girl, she seemed to me, and quite nice looking. I wouldn't say hers was a face that launched a thousand ships, to quote one of Jesus' gags, and there was probably all to the good, for Florence, I imagine, would have had a word to say if Ginger had returned from his travels with something in tow calculated to bring a whistle to the lips of all beholders. A man of his position has to exercise considerable care in his choice of secretaries, ruling out anything that might well have done in the latest Miss America contest. But you would certainly describe her appearance as pleasant. She gave me the impression of being one of those quiet, sympathetic girls who you could tell your troubles to if in certain confidence of having your hand held and head patted. The sort of girl you could go and say, I say, I've just committed a murder, and it's worrying me rather. And she would reply, There, there, try not to think about it. It's the sort of thing that might happen to anybody. The little mother, in short, with the added attraction of being tops at shorthand and typing. I could have wished Ginger's affairs in no better hands. James brought out the suitcases and stowed them away, and Ginger asked me to do the driving, as he had a lot of business to go into with his new secretary, giving her the lowdown on her duties, I suppose. We set out accordingly with me and Jeeves in the front, and about the journey down there was nothing of interest to report. I was in a merry mood throughout, as always when about to get another whack at Anatole's cooking. Jeeves presumably felt the same, for he, like me, is one of that master skillet wielder's warmest admirers. But whereas I sang a good deal as we buzzed along, he maintained, as is his custom, the silent reserve of a stuffed frog never joining in the chorus, though cordially invited to. Arriving at Journey's End, we all separated. Jeeves attended to the luggage, Ginger took Magnolia Glendennan off to his office, and I made my way to the drawing-room, which I found empty. There seemed to be no one about, as so often happens when you fetch up at a country house latish in the afternoon. No sign of Aunt Dahlia, nor of Uncle Tom, her mate. I toyed with the idea of going to see if the latter was in the room where he keeps his collection of old silver, but I thought better of it. Uncle Tom is one of those enthusiastic collectors who, if in a position to grab you, detains you for hours, talking about sconces and foliations and ribbon wreaths and high relief and godroon borders, and one wants as little of that sort of thing as one can manage. 
I might have gone to pay my respects to Anatole, but there again I thought better of it. He too is inclined to the long monologue when he gets you in his power, his pet subject being the state of his interior. He suffered from bouts of what he calls mal or foy, and his conversation would be of greater interest to a medical man than to a layman like myself. I don't know why it is, but when somebody starts talking to me about his liver, I never can listen for real enjoyment. On the whole, the thing to do seemed to be to go for a saunter in the extensive grounds and messuages. It was one of those heavy, sultry afternoons when nature seems to be saying to itself, Now shall I or shall I not scare the pants off of these people with one hell of a thunderstorm? But I decided to risk it. There was a small wooded bit not far from the house, which I've always been fond of, and thither I pushed along. This wooded bit contains one or two rustic benches for the convenience of those who wish to sit and meditate, and as I hove alongside the first of these, I saw that there was an expensive-looking camera on it. It surprised me somewhat, for I had no idea that Aunt Dahlia had taken up photography. But of course you never know what aunts will be up to next. The thought that occurred to me almost immediately was as if there was going to be a thunderstorm, it would be accompanied by rain, and rain falling on a camera doesn't do any good. I picked the thing up accordingly and started off back to the house with it, feeling that the old relative would thank me for my thoughtfulness, possibly with tears in her eyes. When there was a sudden bellow and an individual emerged from a clump of bushes, it startled me considerably, I don't mind telling you. He was an extremely stout individual with a large pink face and a Panama hat with a pink ribbon. He was a perfect stranger to me, and I wondered what he was doing here. He didn't look like the sort of crony Aunt Dahlia would have invited to stay, and still less Uncle Tom, who was so allergic to guests that when warned of their approach he generally makes a bolt of it and disappears, leaving not a rack behind, as I've heard Jeeves put it. However, as I was saying, you never know what aunts will be up to next, and no doubt the ancestor had had some good reason for asking the chap to come and mix. So I beamed civilly and opened the conversation with a genial, Hello there! Nice day, I said, continuing to beam civilly. Or rather, not so frightfully nice. It looks as if we're in for a thunderstorm. Something seemed to have annoyed him. The pink of his face had deepened to about the colour of his Panama hat ribbon and both his chins trembled slightly. Damn thunderstorms! He responded. Curtly, I suppose, would be the word, and I said I didn't like them myself. It was lightning, I added, that I chiefly objected to. They say it never strikes twice in the same place, but then it hasn't got to. Damn the lightning! What are you doing with my camera? This naturally opened up a new line of thought. Oh, is this your camera? Yes, it is. I was taking it to the house. You were? Were you? I didn't want to get wet. Oh, and who are you? I was glad he'd asked me that. His whole manner had made it plain to a keen mind like mine he was under the impression he had caught me in the act of absconding with his property. And I was glad to have the opportunity of presenting my credentials. I could see that if we were ever to have a good laugh together over this amusing misunderstanding, there would have to be a certain amount of preliminary spade work. Worcester is the name. I'm my aunt's nephew. I mean, I went on, for those last words seemed to me not to have run quite right. Uh, Mrs. Travers is my aunt. You're staying in the house? Yes, just arrived. Oh? 
He said again, but this time in what you might call a less hostile tone of voice, though still not to be described as chummy. The father's silence, presumably occupied by him in turning things over his mind in the light of my statement and examining them in depth, and then he said, Oh, once more and stumped off. I made no move to accompany him. What little I had of his society had been ample. As we were staying in the same house, we would no doubt meet occasionally, but not, I resolved, if I saw him first. The whole episode reminded me of my first encounter with Sir Walken Bassett and the misunderstanding about his umbrella. That had left me shaken, and so at this. I was glad to have a rustic bench handy, so I could sit and try to bring my nervous system back into shape. The sky had become more and more inky, I suppose is the word I want, and the odds on the thunderstorm were shorter than ever, but I still lingered. It was only when there came from above a noise like fifty-seven trucks going over a wooden bridge that I felt that an immediate move would be judicious. I rose and soon gathered speed. I had reached the French window of the drawing room and was on the point of popping through when from within there came the sound of a human voice. On second thought, delete the word human, for it was the voice of my recent acquaintance with whom I had chatted about cameras. I halted. There was a song I used to sing in my bath at one time, the refrain of which began with the words, I stopped and looked and listened. And this is what I did now, except for the looking. It wasn't raining, nor was there any repetition of the truck going over a wooden bridge noise. It was as though nature had said to itself, oh the hell with it, and decided it was too much trouble to have a thunderstorm after all. So I wasn't getting struck by lightning or even wet, which enabled me to remain in status quo. The camera bloke was speaking to some unseen companion, and what he said was, Worcester, his name is, says he is Mrs. Travers' nephew. It was plain I had arrived in the middle of a conversation. The words must have been preceded by a query. Possibly, oh, by the way, do you happen to know who that tall, slender, good-looking, I might say almost fascinating young man I was talking to outside there might be? Though, of course, possibly not. That, at any rate, must have been the gist. And I suppose the party of the second party replied, No, sorry, can't place him, or was to that effect. Whereupon the camera chap had spoken as above, and as he spoke as above, a snort rang through the quiet room, and a voice, speaking with every evidence of horror and disgust, exclaimed, Worcester! And I quivered from hairdo to shoe sole. I may even have gasped, but fortunately not loud enough to be audible beyond the French window for it was the voice of Lord Sidcup, or, as I always think of him, no matter how many titles he may have inherited, as Spode. Spode, mark you, whom I had thought and hoped I'd seen the last of, after dusting the dust of Tutley Towers from the Worcester feet. Spode, who went about seeking whom he might devour, and from early boyhood had been a hissing and byword to all right-thinking men. Little wonder that, for a moment, everything seemed to go black, and I had to clutch at a passing rose-bush to keep from falling. This spode, I must explain, for the benefit of the newcomers, who have not read the earlier chapters of my memoirs, was a character whose path had crossed mine many a time, and oft, as the expression is, and always with the most disturbing results. I have spoken of the improbability of a beautiful friendship ever getting underway between me and the camera chap, 
but the likelihood of any such fusion of souls, as I have heard Jeeves call it, between me and Spode was even more remote. Our views on each other were definite. His view was that what England needed to become a land fit for heroes to live in was fewer and better Worcesters. While I had always felt that there was nothing wrong with England that a ton of bricks falling from a height onto Spode's head wouldn't cure. You know him? said the camera chap. I'm sorry to say I do, said Spode, speaking like Sherlock Holmes asked if he knew Professor Moriarty. How did you happen to meet him? I found him making off with my camera. Oh. Naturally, I thought he was stealing it, but if it's really Mrs. Travers' nephew, I suppose I was mistaken. Spode would have none of this reasoning, though it seemed pretty sound to me. He snorted again with even more follow-through than the first time. Being Mrs. Travers' nephew means nothing. If he was the nephew of an archbishop, he would behave in precisely a similar manner. Wooster would steal anything that's not nailed down, provided he could do it unobserved. He wouldn't have known you were there, huh? No, I was behind the bush. And your camera looks like a good one to me. It cost me a lot of money. Then of course he was intending to steal it. He must have thought he had dropped into a bit of good luck. Let me tell you about Wooster. The first time I met him was in an antique shop. I'd gone there with Sir Watkin Bassett, my future father-in-law. He collects old silver, and Sir Watkin had propped his umbrella up against a piece of furniture. Worcester was there but lurking, so we didn't see him. In a dark corner, perhaps. Or behind something. The first we saw him, he was sneaking off with Sir Watkin's umbrella. That was pretty cool of him. Oh, he's cool, all right. These fellows have to be. I suppose so. He must have nerves of ice. To say that I boiled with justifiable indignation would not be putting it too strongly. As I have recorded elsewhere, there was a ready explanation of my behaviour. I had come out without my umbrella that morning, and had completely forgotten I had done so as I grasped old Bassett's, obeying the primeval instinct which makes a man without an umbrella reach out for the nearest one in sight, like a flower groping toward the sun, unconsciously as it were. Spode resumed. They had taken a moment off, no doubt, in order to brood on my delinquency. His voice now was that of one about to come to the high spot in his narrative. You'll hardly believe this, but soon after he turned up at Tutley Towers, Sir Watkins' house in Gloucestershire. Incredible. I thought you'd think so. Disguised, of course. A wig, a false beard, his cheeks stand with walnut juice. No, he came quite openly, invited by my future wife. She has a sort of sentimental pity for him. I think she hopes to reform him. Ah, girls will be girls. Yes, but I wish they wouldn't. Did you rebuke your future wife? I wasn't in a position to do so then. Probably a wise thing anyway. I once rebuked a girl I wanted to marry. She went off and teamed up with a stockbroker. So what happened? He stole a valuable piece of silver, a sort of silver cream jug, a cow creamer they call it. My doctor forbids me cream. You had him arrested, of course. We couldn't. There was no evidence. But you'll know for certain he did it. We were certain. 
Well, that is how it goes. C'est la guerre. Did you see any more of him after that? This you will not believe. He came to Totler Towers again. Impossible. Once more invited by my future wife. Would that be the Miss Bassett who arrived last night? Yes, that would be Madeline. Lovely girl. I met her in the garden before breakfast. My doctor recommends a breath of fresh air in the early morning. Did you know she thinks those little bits of mist you see on the grass are the elves' bridal veils? She has a very whimsical fancy. And nothing to be done about it, I suppose. You were telling me about the second visit of Whistles to Totley Towers. Did he steal anything this time? An amber statuette worth a thousand pounds! My, he certainly gets around. Said the camera chap with, I thought, a sort of grudging admiration. I hope you had him arrested. We did. I spent the night in the local jail. But the next morning, so what can weaken and let him off? Mistaken kindness. So I thought. The camera chap didn't comment further on this, though he was probably thinking that of all the soppy families introduced to his notice, the basses took the biscuit. Well, I'm very obliged to you for telling me about this man Wooster and putting me on my guard. I've brought a very valuable bit of old silver with me. I'm hoping to sell it to Mr. Travers. If Wooster learns of this, he is bound to try to purloin it. And I can tell you that if he does, and I catch him, there will be none of this nonsense of a single night in jail. He will get the stiffest sentence the law can provide. And now, how about a quick game of billiards before dinner? My doctor advises a little gentle exercise. I should enjoy it. Then let us be getting along. Having given them the time to remove themselves, I went in and sank down on the sofa. I was profoundly stirred, for if you think fellows enjoy listening to the sort of things spoded and saying about me, you're wrong. My pulse was rapid and my brow wet with honest sweat, like the village blacksmiths. I was badly in need of alcoholic refreshment, and just as my tongue was beginning to stick out and blacken at the roots, shiver my timbers if Jeeves didn't enter left centre with a tray containing all the makings. St. Bernard dogs, you probably know, behave in a similar way in the Alps, and are well thought of in consequence. Mingled with the ecstasy which the sight of him aroused in my bosom was a certain surprise that he should be acting as cupbearer. It was a job that should rightly have fallen into the province of Seppings and Dahlia's butler. Hello, Jeeves, I ejaculated. Good evening, sir. I have unpacked your effects. Can I pour you a whiskey and soda? You can indeed, but what are you doing butling? This mystifies me greatly. Where's Seppings? He has retired to bed, sir, with an attack of indigestion, consequent upon a too liberal indulgence in Monsieur Anatole's cooking at lunch. I am undertaking his duties for the time being. Very good of you, and very good of you to pop up at this particular moment. I have had a shock, Jeeves. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. Did you know the Spode was here? Yes, sir. And Miss Bassett? Yes, sir. We might as well be at Totley Towers, Jeeves. I can appreciate your dismay, sir, but fellow guests are easily avoided. Yes, and if you avoid them, what do they do? They go about telling men in Panama hats you're a sort of cross between Raffles and one of those fellows who pinch bags at the railway stations. And in a few crisp words, I gave him a resume of Spode's remarks.
Most disturbing, sir. Yes, you know and I know how sound my motives were for everything I did at Tartley. But what if Spode tells Aunt Agatha? That is an unlikely contingency, sir. I suppose it is. But I know how you feel, sir. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing, twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he who filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Neat! Is that yours? No, sir. Shakespeare's. Shakespeare said some rather good things, didn't he? I understand that he has given uniform satisfaction, sir. Shall I mix you another? Do just that, Jeeves, and with all convenient speed. He had completed his St. Bernard act and withdrawn, and I was sipping my second rather more slowly than the first, when the door opened and Aunt Dahlia bounded in, all joviality and rosy complexion. Chapter 6 I never see this relative without thinking how odd it is that one sister, let's call her sister A, can be so unlike another sister, whom we shall call Sister B. My Aunt Agatha, for instance, is tall and thin and looks rather like a vulture in the Gobi Desert, while Aunt Dahlia is short and solid like a scrum half in the game of rugby football. In disposition, too, they differ widely. Aunt Agatha is cold and haughty, though presumably she unbends a bit when conducting human sacrifices at the time of the full moon as she is widely rumoured to do, and her attitude toward me has always been that of an austere governess, causing me to feel as if I was six years old and she had just caught me stealing jam from the jam cupboard, whereas Aunt Dahlia is as jovial and bornemous as a pantomime dame in a Christmas pantomime. Curious. I welcomed her with a huge hello, in both syllables, at which a nephew's love and esteem could be easily detected and went so far as to imprint an affectionate kiss on her brow. Later, I would take her roundly to task for filling the home with spodes and Madeline Bassets and bulging bounders and Panama hats, but that could wait. She returned my greeting with one of her uncouth hunting cries, Yorks, if I recall correctly. Apparently, when you've been with the Corn Pitchley for some time, you drop into the habit of departing from basic English. So here you are, young Bertie. You never spoke a truer word. Up and doing with a heart for any fate. As thirsty as ever, I observe. I thought I would find you tucking into the drinks. Purely medicinal. I've had a shock. What gave you that? Suddenly becoming apprised of the fact that that blighter spurred is a my fellow guest, I said, feeling that I couldn't have a better cue for getting down to my recriminations. What on earth was the idea of inviting a fiend in human shape like that here? I said this, for I knew she shared my opinion of the seventh Earl of Sidcup. You have told me many a time and off that you consider him one of nature's gravest blunders, and yet you go out of your way to court his society, if court his society is the expression I want. You must have been off your onion, old ancestor. It was a severe ticking off and you would have expected the blush of shame to have mantled her cheeks. Not that you would have noticed it much, her complexion being what it was after all those winters in the hunting field. But she was apparently imp-something, imp impervious, that's the word, 
to remorse. She remained what Anatole would have called as cool as some cucumbers. Ginger asked me too. He wanted Spo to speak for him at the election. He knows him slightly. That's the best way of knowing Spode. He needs all the help he can get, Bertie. Spode's one of those silver-tongued orators you read about. Extraordinary gift of gab he has. He could get into Parliament without straining a sinew. I dare say she was right, but I resented any praise of Spode. I made clear my displeasure by responding curtly. Then why doesn't he? He can't, you poor chump. He's a lord. Don't they allow lords in? No, they don't, Bertie. I see, I said, rather impressed by this proof that the House of Commons drew the line somewhere. Well, I suppose you aren't as much to blame as I thought. How do you get on with him? I avoid him as much as possible. Very shrewd. I shall do the same. We now come to Madeline Bassett. She's here too. Why? Oh, Madeline came along for the ride. She wanted to be near Spode. An extraordinary thing to want, I agree. Morbid, you might call it. Florence Cray, of course, has come to help Ginger's campaign. I started visibly. In fact, I jumped about six inches, as if a skewer or a knitting needle had come through the seat of my chair. You don't mean that Florence is here as well? With bells on. You seem perturbed, Bertie. I'm all a Twitter. It never occurred to me when I came here I would be getting into a sort of population explosion. Whoever told you about population explosions? Jeeves, they're rather a favourite subject of his. He says if something isn't done pretty soon, then... I'll bet he said if steps are not taken through the proper channels. He did, as a matter of fact. He said if steps are not taken shortly through the proper channels, half the world will soon be standing on the other half's shoulders. That's all right if you're one of the top layers. Yes, there's that, of course. Though even then it would be uncomfortable. Tricky sort of balancing act. Yes, true. And difficult to go for a stroll if you wanted to stretch your legs. And one wouldn't get much hunting. Yes, not much. We mused for a while on what lay before us, and I remember thinking that present conditions, even with Spode and Madeline and Florence on the premises, suited one better. From this to thinking of Uncle Tom was but a step. It seemed to me that the poor old buster must be on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Even a single guest is sometimes too much for him. How is Uncle Tom bearing up under this invasion of his cabin? She stared incredibly, or rather incredulously. Did you expect to find him here playing the banjo? My poor half-witted child. He was off to the south of France the moment he learned that danger threatened. I got a picture postcard from him yesterday. He's having a wonderful time and wishes I was there. And don't you mind all these blighters overrunning the place? I would prefer it if they were elsewhere, but I treat them with saintly forbearance because I feel it's all helping Ginger. How do things look in that direction, anyway? An even bet, I would say. The slightest thing might turn the scale. He and his opponent are having a debate in a day or two. And a good deal, you might say everything depends on that. Who's the opponent? Local talent. A barrister. 
G says Market Snodsbury is very straight-laced, and if the electors found out about Ginger's past, they would heave him out without even handing him his hat. Does he have a past? Well, I wouldn't call it that. Pure routine, I'd describe it as. In the days before he fell under Florence's spell, he was rather apt to get slung out of restaurants for throwing eggs at the electric fan, and he seldom escaped unjugged on boat race night for pinching policemen helmets. Will that lose him votes? Lose him votes? If it was brought to market Snodsbury's attention, I doubt he would get a single one. That sort of thing might be overlooked in the cities of the plain, but not in market Snodsbury. For heaven's sake, don't go babbling about it to everyone you meet. My dear old ancestor, am I likely to? Very likely, I should say. You know how fat your head is. I would have one of you called it this slur, with vehemence, but the adjective she had used reminded me that we had been talking all this time and I hadn't inquired about the camera chap. By the way, who would that fat fellow be? I asked. Someone fond of starchy foods, who has omitted to watch his calories, I imagine. What on earth, if anything, are you talking about? I saw my question had been too abrupt. I hastened to clarify. Strolling in the grounds and massages just now, I encountered an obese bird in a Panama hat with a pink ribbon, and I was wondering who he was and how he came to be staying here. He didn't look like the sort of bloke for whom you would be putting the mats out with welcome on them. He gave me the impression of being a thug of the First Order. My words seemed to have touched a chord. Rising nimbly, she went to the door and opened it, then to the French window and looked out, plainly in order to ascertain that nobody, except me of course, was listening. Spies and spy movies do the same sort of thing when about to make communications which are for your ears only. I suppose I better tell you about him, she said. I intimated that I would be an attentive audience. That's L.P. Rocal, and I want you to exercise your charm on him, such as it is. He has to be conciliated and sucked up to. Why? Is he someone special? You bet he's someone special. He's a big financier. Rocal Enterprises. He's loaded with money. See to me that these words could have but one significance. You're hoping to touch him. Such is indeed my aim, but not for myself. I want to get a round sum out of him for Tuppy Glossop. Her allusion was to the nephew of Sir Roderick Glossop, the well-known nerve specialist and loony doctor, once a source of horror and concern to Bertram, but now one of my leading pals. He calls me Bertie, I call him Roddy. Tuppy, too, is one of my immediate circle of buddies, in spite of the fact that he once betted me I couldn't swing myself from end to end on the rings above the swimming pool at the drones, and when I came to the last one I found he had looped it back, giving me no option but to drop into the water in faultless evening dress. This had been like a dagger in the bosom for a considerable period, but eventually time the great healer had ironed out things and I had forgiven him. He had been betrothed to Aunt Dahlia's daughter Angela for ages, and I had never been able to understand why they hadn't got around to letting the wedding bells get cracking. I had been expecting every day for ever so long to be called on to weigh in with the silverfish slice, but the summons never came. Naturally, I asked if Tuppy was hard up, and she said he wasn't begging his bread and nosing about in the gutters for cigarette ends, but he hadn't enough to marry on. 
Thanks to L.P. Roncal. I'll tell you the whole story. Oh, do. Did you ever meet Tuppy's late father? Once I remember him as a dreamy old bird of the absent-minded professor type. He was a chemical researcher, or whatever they call it, employed by Runcal Enterprises, one of those fellows you see in the movies who go about in white coats peering into test tubes. And one day he invented what were afterwards known as Runcal's magic midgets, small pills for curing headaches. You probably come across them. Yes, I know them well. Excellent for a hangover, though not, of course, to be compared with Jeeves's patent pick-me-up. They're very popular, the drones. I know a dozen fellows who swear by them. There must be a fortune in them. There is. They sell like warm winter woolies in Iceland. Then why is Tuppy short of cash? Didn't he inherit them? Not by a jug full. I don't get it. You speak in riddles, aged relative. I said this, and there was a touch of annoyance in my voice, for if there is one thing that gives me the pip, it is an aunt speaking in riddles. If these ruddy midget things belong to Tuppy's father... L.P. Roncar claimed they didn't. Tuppy's father was working for him on a salary, and the small print in the contract read that all inventions made on Roncar's enterprise's time became property of Roncar Enterprises. So when old Glossop died, he hadn't much to leave his son, while L.P. went on flourishing like a green bay tree. I'd never seen a green bay tree, but I gathered what she meant. Couldn't Tuppy sue? He would have been bound to lose. A contract is a contract. I know what she meant. It's not unlike that time when she was running that weekly paper of hers, Milady's Boudoir, and I contributed to it an article on peace, as it was sometimes called, on what the well-dressed man is wearing. She gave me a packet of cigarettes for it, and it then became her property. I didn't actually get offers for it from France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and the United States, but if I had, I couldn't have accepted them. My pal, Boko Littleworth, who makes a living by his pen, tells me I ought to have sold her only the first serial rights, but I didn't think of it at the time. One makes these mistakes. What one needs, of course, is an agent. All the same, I considered that L.P. Roncal ought to have stretched a point and let Tuppy's father get something out of it. I put this to the ancestor and she agreed with me. Of course he ought to. More obligation than all. It confirms one's views of this Roncal as a stinker. The supreme stinker. And he tells me he has been tipped off that he's going to get a knighthood. How can they knight a chap like that? Just the sort of chap they do knight. Prominent businessmen, big deals, service to Britain and all. What a stinker! Yes, he is unquestionably a stinker. Then what's he doing here? You usually don't go out of your way to entertain stinkers. Spode, yes, I can understand you letting him infest the premises, much as I disapprove of it. He's making speeches on Ginger's behalf, and according to you, does it rather well. But why run Carl? She said, Ah! And when I asked her reason for saying ah, she replied that she was thinking of her subtle cunning. And when I asked what she meant by subtle cunning, she said ah again. It looked as if we might go on like that indefinitely. But a moment later, having toddled to the door and opened it and to the French window and peered out, she explained. 
Runcorn came here hoping to sell Tom an old silver whatnot for his collection. And as Tom had vanished and he had come a long way, I had to put him up for the night. And at dinner, I suddenly had an inspiration. I thought if I got him to stay on and plied him day and night with Anatole's cooking, he might get into a mellowed mood. She had ceased to speak in riddles. This time I followed her. So that you would be able to talk him into slipping tuppies some of his ill-gotten gains. Exactly. I'm biding my time. When the moment comes, I shall act like lightning. I told him Tom would be back in a day or two. Not that he will. Because he won't come within fifty miles of the place till I blow the all clear. So Runcall consented to stay on. And how's that working out? The prospects look good. He meadows more with every meal. Anatole gave us his mignette de poulet petit duc last night, and he tucked into it like a tapeworm that's been on a diet for weeks. There was no mistaking the gleam in his eyes as he downed the last mouthful. A few more dinners ought to do the trick. She left me shortly after this to go and dress for dinner. I strong in the knowledge that I could get into the soup and fish in ten minutes. I lingered on, plunged in thought. Extraordinary how I kept doing that of even date. It just shows what my life is like now. I don't suppose in the old days I would have been plunged in thought more than maybe once a month.